the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you know, every year during the 1st of January, so often many of us will look to resolutions. We'll promise ourselves everything from trying to get more exercise to lose weight to perhaps uh, be more dutiful at being involved in ministry at church, spending more time with our wife, our kids, all of these things which are certain key and important to life. But when you think about the big questions about life, one of the big questions perhaps that most of us struggle at one point or another to try to gain an answer to, and that is understanding specifically what God wants of us, through us, and in our lives, essentially trying to understand what is His will for my life. As we enter in this new season of new beginnings here in the typical January, learning how to reach your full potential for God, certainly no stranger to the KFAX listeners. He is the host of In Touch, heard weekday afternoons at 4 p.m. here on KFAX. And pleased to have with us today, Dr. Charles Stanley. And uh, Pastor, great to have you on the program. Well, delighted to be with you, Craig. You know, we think about, again, New Year's and new beginnings and resolutions and so forth. I can't imagine any bigger question than most of us can ask ourselves. And maybe it's one that we ask not only at the beginning of, of a new year, but at certain key marks in life, be it uh, when we get married, when we retire, when we find a new job, when we perhaps are going to become a parent. And that is struggling to answer this question, learn more about what God wants of us and how to fully reach our potential for God. Well, what he wants above everything else in our life is a personal, intimate relationship with himself. Everything else he can do. But that is something we have to yield to with him. And when you think about all the ways that he works in our life, ultimately, that's his will. And so he's willing, because that's his purpose and his will, he's willing to do whatever is necessary in our life, to enable us to develop that relationship. And when that relationship is right, everything else is going to get right because the truth is every aspect of our life flows out of and is influenced and impacted by a personal relationship with him. So when somebody says, well, I don't know the will of God for my life, you can know because if he has a will, he certainly isn't going to keep it a secret. He's willing to show us if we're willing to submit ourselves. And I think a lot of people want to know the will of God in order to consider it not to do it, and God doesn't play those kind of games. You know, and it's interesting, I think about uh, so many of us that as we came to Christ, if uh, perhaps a friend or a loved one uh, shared the gospel message with us, so one of the, the four key steps to salvation, understanding that God has a plan for our life, and of course, that goes beyond simply the relationship and coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and walking in fellowship with Him, but then ultimately into what it is that He wants to do in us and through us, and I found it 
interesting. In some of your opening remarks to this Thomas Nelson book, Reach Your Full Potential for God, Neville's Never Settle for Less Than His Best, you talk about the fact that God impressed upon your heart that to understand fully what God wants to do in us and through us, you have to approach this at the get-go with a clean heart, a clear mind, and a balanced schedule. I have to tell you, those three items alone caught my attention. Well, that's the way it is. And I woke up one morning about three o'clock and out of a dead sleep, and it's like the Lord said, do you want to reach your full potential for your life? And I said, well, sure. And so I thought I didn't know what was going on, but I pulled out a pad and a pen I keep by my bed. And so as I began to just be quiet and listen, the Lord just laid out all seven of those points uh, to me very clearly. And when you think about it, I, I thought, well, now, am I sure this is of God? And I looked at him again and again, and I thought, yes, because this is the way he thinks. First of all, a clean heart and a clear mind. In other words, and a balanced schedule. That is, that he has the proper time that he needs to work in our life. And if my if my heart's not if my heart's not clean, my mind is not going to really be clear, and I'm not going to operate in my life on his schedule. And when we're not operating on his schedule, we can't do our best, and we won't do our best. So, so much of this really reaching our full potential in the Lord, whatever that might be. And certainly it, it's different for all of us. God gives and grants to each and every one of us different skills, talents, abilities, and, and goals. But in order to fully reach that, we really have to be walking in uh, the fullness of his fellowship then, don't we? This needs to be an intimate kind of relationship with the Lord that can't be something that's just sort of approached casually. Absolutely. And this is why I said in the very beginning, our personal intimate relationship with him impacts everything. When that's right, I'm, I'm going to have a clear mind about his will for my life. I'm going to understand his schedule for my life. I'm going to have right relationships. I'm going to be willing to take risks for him. And things will fall in place. And it doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy, but it means that no matter what I face, I'm going to come through it. I'm going to come through it successfully because in order to do that, you've got to submit yourself to the will of God. And submitting yourself to the will of God isn't always easy, because I think a lot of people are afraid to do that. They think, well, I want to do the will of God, but suppose he asks me to do this, or suppose he asks me to do that. Because he's a God of love, he's only going to require us what is best for us. And my unwillingness to do what he says is because I don't trust him to love me enough to just choose the best. I would imagine in your many, many years in pulpit ministry and as pastor, uh, this question has been brought before you time and time again, this question. Well, Pastor, I just don't understand what is God's will for my life. And I would suspect then that part of this answer for a lot of people that struggle with that is the notion that they're fearful. Well, gee, you know, if I really pursue God, what if God asked me to become a missionary on the foreign mission field or or do something that I don't really feel cut out to do? Does God do things like that? I mean, is he, is he of the character that he's going to surprise us and, and call us to do something that we're neither inclined to do or even equipped to do? There are some things he's going to do that's going to surprise us, all right, but they're coming from the perspective that, that God's motivation is judgment and punishment and testing me and trying me when God's motivation is love. Now, if he wants to send somebody to the mission field, that isn't God doing something bad for them. That's God giving them an opportunity, but it always goes back to what is my attitude toward God. In other words, do I see him as a heavenly father who loves me, who has saved me, who wants to show me his will, provide my needs, test me, try me, yes, but all of that 
to grow me up and become the person he wants me to be. And those t- periods of testing and trial are for our good. And it's interesting. I, I've always thought the passage of Scripture where we're reminded that God will give us the desires of our heart, but in another passage, that we are encouraged to, to keep our mind and our heart focused on Him. And so if we put right. Him first in life, and He is the central, He is uh, our, our heart's desire, so to speak, uh, that as He comes to fulfill those desires in the end, this will be something that will not only give glory to His name, but also much delight to us. And I guess in the end, when we talk about determining what He wants for us and discovering and reaching our full potential for Him, uh, in the end becomes not only a delight for the Lord, but a delight unto us as well. And when He says, if we delight ourselves in Him, I think most folks don't realize that he must be central in our life, that if I'm delighting myself in him, then my decisions are going to be based always on this. What's pleasing to God? What is his will in this situation? What would he have me to do? Not what do I want to do and then want to make him fit my plan. But what do you say then, Pastor, to the person who says, but Pastor Stanley, you don't understand. I'm so average. I'm plain. There's nothing really special about me. I, I don't have the ability of, of, of great oratory skills to get on the radio or up in the pulpit and proclaim the Word of God. I, I don't have a degree in anything. I'm, I'm just kind of an average Joe. Um, how could God ever possibly use me? I think many people have asked that question. Probably everybody who's ever accomplished anything has asked that at some point. But the issue is not... Uh, comparing ourselves with others, we think about what we have and don't have, then we're comparing ourselves with others. The question is, what has God given me, and what is God able to do with what he has given me? And the truth is, we would say, well, God is does the impossible, but many people have problems with this because they have a poor self-image, uh, they have uh, a poor uh, image of what they're capable of doing, they have lots of fear, that they're afraid fail, they fail what people are going to say, a criticism. And so a lot of that negative thinking is the result of their attitudes that have no real scriptural basis whatsoever. God wants the best, will provide the best. All he's looking for is submission to his will and let him decide what he wants to do with us. And, you know, so much of this comes back down to, I think, one of the central points when we talked earlier about a clean heart, clear mind, and a balanced schedule. That that word balance is so key to this. Uh, speaking to uh, Jim Dobson uh, on the occasion of his retirement from full-time ministry and looking back over the course of 30 years of ministry with focus on the family and, of course, the big question, could you ever have imagined in the 1970s when you began with one little radio station down in Southern California that this ministry would ever grow to the level and potential that it has to become now this international outreach. And, of course, the response, if I had known what this would have grown to, I would have been scared to death and too afraid to start it. I think sometimes we need to realize that it's good if we have a sense that we aren't fully capable, that we can't do it in and all of ourselves, because if we felt otherwise, then there would be, in many levels, no sense or no need for God. Absolutely, and I think the Spirit the spirit of, of inadequacy that is based on a true, genuine understanding of who God is and His holiness is always healthy. And once we step out of line with that sense of personal inadequacy, uh, 
pride, arrogance, and everything else gets in the way, and we're not going to be able to be used by God. He's not going to use arrogance. Dr. Charles Stanley, my guest on this edition of Lifeline, Reach Your Full Potential for God, Never Settle for Less Than His Best, published by Thomas Nelson. We'll take a brief time out when we come back, learning how to move beyond the settled-for life, as our conversation with Dr. Charles Stanley continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline, our conversation with Pastor Charles Stanley, host of In Touch Ministries. Of course, the program comes your way each weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. here on KFAX. And more information on the web at intouch.org. And it's interesting, Pastor Stanley, I think for so many of us, as we go through certain high water marks in life, and this might be times of uh, perhaps a marriage or a divorce or death of a spouse, a loss of a job or retiring or even becoming a new parent. Uh, these times and occasions when we struggle with the question of what does God want from us? What does he want of us? How can we reach our full potential? And then sometimes I think, unfortunately, we get we get discouraged, we get bogged down by the challenges and obstacles of life, and we end up settling for less than his very best. How can we how can we move past that settled for kind of life? What we have to do, one of the first things is this, and that is to recognize who we are from God's perspective. We are one of his children, created in his image, to bring him glory and honor. And he has promised that he will be with us, enable us, encourage us, provide for us, no matter what in every circumstance. And when I think about how many people can quote Romans 8:28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who call to go into his purpose, oftentimes people will quote that, but they don't believe it about themselves. Mm. And they are willing to settle for far less because for a number of reasons. Sometimes, as we said, they're fear of failure. Sometimes they're just lazy. They're not willing to pay the price. They're not willing to submit themselves to the Lord's way and His will in their life. And so they settle for less than that. Then they become very angry oftentimes, or very discouraged, and, and always want to blame it on somebody else. We have to take responsibility for our life and recognize that God is very involved in our life and that whatever our needs are, He will supply if we submit to His will and do it His way. I would imagine one of the big um, big obstacles to achieving that sense of, of full potential and enjoying that, that inner drive and that enthusiasm for life and, and what you do in and through the Lord is the roadblock of being unwilling to surrender fully to Him, would you think? Absolutely. I do believe that that is the major issue. And that one willingness to surrender is either selfishness from our part, we want our way, or fear of what God may require of us. And oftentimes, people will head in that direction and then just begin to doubt. And they give up and just say, well, I can't do it, or who am I, as we said a few moments ago, what can I do, what has God done for me? And every person has gifts, every person has talents and abilities. Some people are willing to employ them and take the risk of failure or criticism, and some people are just not willing to do it. 
We talked a moment ago about some of those important life junctures, uh, and I think perhaps there are some of those high watermark points in life when it's it's always healthy to um, sort of take account of where we're at, not only in our relationship with Christ, our relationship with our children, our spouse, and to make sure that we're indeed on track for for the plan that He has for us. You know, we're told in Scripture that that He's begun a good work in us, that He will complete that through our days. But I I think it's important, perhaps, as we hit some of those important timelines in life, whether we're we're beginning out in a new marriage, maybe we've just gone through a pain of divorce through no fault of our own, and now we're struggling with that. Maybe we've lost a spouse. Is it important, Pastor Stanley, at those moments to sit down and kind of take a fresh account of not only where we're at in our relationship with him, but also to not only make sure we're on track for what he wants for us and wants to do through us, but also maybe to ask the question, maybe God wants to take us in a a different direction with new goals at those junctures? I think you're absolutely correct. And because there are situations and circumstances where we have to make changes. We have to make changes about the way we think, changes about our schedule, changes, for example, about what we think is his will and purpose and plan for our life. And those times are very, very important because so often a person's life takes a turn uh, for the good or maybe not for the good, as a result of maybe just ignoring the seriousness of the situation and leaving God out, making decisions on the basis of what seems to be right or wrong or what's the easiest way out. Very important, not only in critical junctures like that, but the truth is every day when we awaken in the morning, we ought to be saying, Now, Lord, show me your will for my life today. Make me sensitive about the people I meet. Help me to be perceptive about the things that are going on around me and show me your will for this day step by step and when we're willing to do that he's there he's there to enable us no matter what we're going through and then finally i'm wondering pastor stanley about measurement of performance you know uh, many of us in the workplace uh, we will have a semi-annual or annual meetings with our immediate supervisor who will take a look at things like uh, our attendance record how we interact with fellow employees deal with customers and clients and things of this sort and then help evaluate us and we'll note the areas where we are excelling or or achieving our goals and outstanding performance uh, areas where maybe we're just satisfactory other areas where perhaps our performance is unsatisfactory. How do we go about ascertaining whether or not we're really hitting the mark when it comes to serving God and achieving the goals and plans that He has for our life? I think so often many of us will try to compare where we're at against other people and say, well, gee, you know, I'm, I'm just a pastor of a small church and I only have 75 members in my congregation, so God must be dissatisfied with me because, gee, the pastor up the block has got 800 members. How do we go about ascertaining whether or not we're actually on track for what God's will is for our life. First of all, is my heart clean? Am I thinking scripturally? Am I thinking clearly? What about my schedule? What, how am I spending my time? And Am I using it uh, wisely or am I wasting time? What about my relationships? How very important they are in my life. And as a person goes down each one of these, uh, it gives them a time to think through where they are in life. And I think this has to happen many, many times in life, not just at the critical junctures, but I can think in my own life, oftentimes, right before God has uh, given me some instruction about something, uh, that to make a change, that's I, I would have this feeling, I just need to give some time to the Lord and get in His Word and be quiet. Mm-hmm. Just say, Lord, I want you to examine my heart. I want you to show me 
if there's some area here that you want to change. And if there is an area of change, and most of the time there is something going on, then he's going to show us what it is. And he's not going to show us judgmentally, but he's going to show us to encourage us and to remind us that the change that needs to take place, he will enable us to do it. In that way, we keep progressing in life no matter what. And it, and it strikes me that it takes us back full circle to one of those key points that you talked about in the beginning of our conversation, uh, this sense of a clean heart, a clean mind, a balanced schedule, and the willingness to surrender. You know, sometimes we'll go before the Lord at one of these critical junctures or just when it's time to, to sort of refresh and renew and, and check in with God, so to speak, to make sure that we're on track. The willingness to say, Lord, I'm going to surrender to you, and I'm going to seek your face and your answers for where I'm headed next, and I might have some thoughts and desires in my own heart to understand that I need to surrender even that, and sometimes if we if we say before the Lord, gee, God, will you do this for me or take me in this direction, that if God gives you a no answer, that that's still an answer. That's exactly right, <laughs> because his no answers are answers are for our protection and for our guidance, and for our good. No's are not always bad. Again, reach your full potential for God, never settle for less than his best, by Thomas Nelson. And the book, again, available at bookstores. In touch with Pastor Charles Stanley each weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. here on KFAX. And more information about both the book and Pastor Stanley's ministry on the web at intouch.org. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. We all, certainly during this course of time that we have been sheltering in place, have had a lot of time for self-thought, some introspection, self-evaluation, which, quite frankly, coming off of the heels of Easter is not a bad thing at all. We should always pause for a moment to take of account where we stand in our relationships, both along the horizontal plane of the cross as well as the vertical plane of the cross in our relationship with God and what all of that means, particularly at a time like this when we as believers can rely upon our faith for comfort while the rest of the world, well, Scripture even talks about a time when men's hearts would fail within for fear. Now, whether or not we're necessarily deep into that timeline from an eschatological standpoint, well, that perhaps is open to debate. But to be sure, there is a very practical and biblical response and understanding that we can and should bring to the current pandemic. Joining me now with some insights is author and founder of the Denison Forum, Dr. Jim Denison. He also is the author of The Daily Article, which helps guide readers through today's news from a biblical standpoint. And Dr. Dennison, great to have you back on the program. Greg, I'm delighted to be with you today, my friend. Thank you for the privilege. It's perhaps by no mistake that we have gone through the peak of this illness across America and the globe right at the time of the Lenten season and certainly Easter. And I think it's a helpful reminder of not just the fragility of life, but also the sense of urgency. And while none of us, to be sure, even Christ himself knows the day or the hour precisely, we know to a certainty that he's coming, he's coming soon, and as I often say on my program, he's a, he's a day closer to coming today than he was just yesterday. Give us some insights in terms of first helping to put into perspective as people continue to struggle with the number of illnesses 
the staggering number of deaths, even here at home in America, where we're approaching upwards of 50,000 people who have lost their lives to this tragic illness. And we struggle to answer for ourselves, and we struggle to answer for others. The question, where is God in the midst of all this? Yeah, thank you, Craig. First of all, that is the question, isn't it? Jesus from the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he could ask that question, we can ask that question. If we're up against something like this, it seems to violate his character, because we know God is all-knowing. He therefore knew about this pandemic before we did. He's all-loving, so you would think he would not want us to have to suffer this. He's all-powerful. We see him heal all through Scripture, so we would think that he could heal this. He could even remove this pandemic if he wished to do so. So why doesn't he? That's the challenge that Christians uniquely face. Other world religions don't really affirm the, the all-knowingness, the all-lovingness, the all-powerfulness of God to the degree that we do. And so as we're doing all of this, really we're looking not so much for the explanation as we are looking for biblical responses to this. One fact is that as we hurt, God hurts. As we suffer, God suffers. He grieves as we grieve. He goes through this with us. Jesus weeps at the grave of Lazarus and still weeps at graves, at graves today. A second biblical fact is that we live in a fallen world. We wouldn't be having this conversation in the Garden of Eden. It's because of the fall of, uh, as you know, the fall of humanity that uh, Romans 8 says that creation has fallen, and that's why we deal with diseases and disasters. That's why there was an earthquake in Los Angeles today. That's why there were uh, tornadoes last week in the South, because we live in a, in a broken and fallen world. But third, we know that God redeems all he allows. He uses for greater good what he allows, and we're just trusting him in that. We're trusting that he will redeem this in ways that, that will use this to his glory and our good. And then finally, we ask, how do we join that? How do we volunteer? Let's turn from the speculative to the practical and ask, how can I make a difference now? What can I do about this that will reach out to my neighbor and serve my Lord in a way that will be practical in this time? You know, going through experiences like this, both individually and, and collectively as a church and as a nation, um, it, it probably, from a silver lining viewpoint, um, is helpful for us to be reminded of not just the fragility of life, but our own sense of mortality, and that that relationship that we have with God, or lack thereof, is something that all of us need to ponder and consider. For those that are in that relationship, whether or not it's exactly where God wants us to be, and if we're not in that relationship, to ask ourselves the question, what kind of an answer do I need to give? Do I expect to someday give to God for the life that He has given me? So I suppose in one regard, there can be aspects of the tragedy of all of the sickness and loss of life that we've seen across America and the globe as an opportunity for us to be reminded that there are some important things that maybe getting caught up in the working world of materialism, making more money, and, and all that we do that tends to distract us, that when it comes back front and center, it is really about the centrality of Christ in our life and our relationship with God. It absolutely is, Craig, and that's what this is showing us on a level that's unprecedented in our lifetime. Before the 20th century, it really was the case that medical practice was primarily about alleviating suffering, but there was not much that could be done to elongate life such as we have seen in our generation. And now we've gotten to this place where we won't even speak of death. We won't even use the phrase, he died. We'll speak of passing on or moving on or some such as that. We don't see bodies at funerals anymore. In fact, quite often we don't have funerals. We have memorial services. Quite often we're, we're unwilling even to consider the fact that this is, that this, that mortality is real for us. Well, this virus changes all that. 
I work as a resident scholar for ethics with Baylor Scott and White. I was on a conference call with our board just yesterday, and I can tell you that even though we have the finest medical minds in the world working on this, we certainly don't have a vaccine. We don't even have medical treatments for this disease right now. Anybody can get it. Anybody can be infectious, even if they're asymptomatic. This is a reminder of our mortality on a level unprecedented in our lifetime. Now, it doesn't change morality. We're no more mortal now than we were two months ago, but we realize that now. So we're seeing people turn to God in unprecedented numbers. A quick example, I know of a pastor at church in California that had 8,000 people typically on their online worship service before the pandemic. On Easter, they had 1.3 million people watching their online service. God is using this and the hunger for, for help and for hope and the fact of mortality to turn people to him in unprecedented numbers. And it's an interesting dichotomy, Dr. Dennison, because on one hand, and you pointed to this a moment ago, that we tend to, in this current um, moment in time, to sort of downplay um, to the point of nullification, uh, the severity of death. As you say, we, we, we tend to downplay it in funeral services. Uh, certainly, if anything, the abortion statistics across America mm-hmm. have demonstrated just far how far disconnected we have come from what the, the implications and, and the true meaning of death really is. And yet, on the other hand, the dichotomy is that we've created a culture of death where violence reigns and everything from video games to what masquerades as entertainment, both on television, movies, the internet. It seems that everywhere we turn, violence is the means of settling disputes. And we've seen this played out in our culture with everything from acts of terrorism to gun violence. And it's almost as if we really have completely attempted to redefine what death is. Now, all of a sudden, we're faced before us that this isn't a game. This isn't entertainment. This isn't a pastime for young children. This is real serious business with very serious consequences. That's exactly right. And what we've done to this point, as you said, is we've caricatured death. Death is what other people experience. It's not what I experience, whether it's abortion, and that's not a child that we're putting to death. That is an unformed body, or that is a growth, or some such as that. All the way to euthanasia, where we're thinking about fighting for the rights of others to die, but that doesn't, and that doesn't involve me. That's their decision. That's their choice. We push that off. We make death a video game. Well, now we're seeing in New York City that they're talking about using city parks to bury bodies because they've run out of space in cemeteries. We're talking about uh, ways of doing morgue that we've never considered before, even portable morgues, and then even running out of space there. We're talking to ER doctors in New York that are describing the front lines of this in ways to make us understand the reality of death. And again, it's not that God caused this, but that's one of the ways God wants to redeem it, is by showing us that death is real, and it comes for us all. It's appointed unto all men once to die, and then the judgment. We're visiting today with Dr. Jim Dennison. He is author and founder of the Dennison Forum. Information available on the web at denisonforum.org. That's denisonforum.org. In addition, he's also senior fellow with the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative and serves as senior fellow for global studies at Dallas Baptist University's Institute for Global Engagement. We'll take this brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our visit today with best-selling author, Dr. Jim Dennison. He, of course, is the author and founder of the Dennison Forum and joins us as we talk about not just 
the Bible and what it has to reveal concerning the current pandemic crisis we're involved with from an eschatological standpoint, but also an analysis of where we as the church should be responding individually in our own relationship with the Lord, and then collectively as the body of believers. And I want to spend some time talking about that for a moment, Dr. Dennison, because we have seen in recent headline news cases in a number of communities across the United States where under the current shelter-in-place regulations, and of course many states that have instituted um, restrictions on gatherings of more than 50 people or gatherings more than 10, that obviously has a very negative impact on the church's ability to meet. Um, And yet, as you referred to a moment ago with the church saying, hey, if we can't gather, let's use the power of all of the wonderful tools we have available to us through technology in order to reach people and and saw an exponential, fantastic um, number of people that participated in a Easter worship service that otherwise might not have been exposed to the gospel nor attended under quote-unquote normal circumstances. And yet I have to wonder, as we've read stories about churches that have protested, have gathered together, contrary to the best advice from medical experts and, and law enforcement, putting congregations at risk, and almost seeming to suggest that if we don't gather somehow in the middle of this crisis, we are, as the church, going to lose our First Amendment rights. And we've suddenly turned this into not a question about people that are dying and going into eternity without Christ, but the church acting as if this is all about us, all about our rights. What are your thoughts and observations concerning what we see is emerging? And again, thank goodness that it's not universal across the country, but we've seen emerging some examples of this that seems to want to make this current crisis about us as opposed to about others. I'm worried about it on two levels, Craig. First of all, on the merits. It's not an attack on religious liberty unless this is specifically directed at religious people, and it's not. These uh, gathering uh, requirements, these shelter-at-place requirements, relate to all gatherings, whether it's schools, whether it's civic clubs, whether it's outside organizations. This is nothing specifically designed against churches. And so for that reason, it can't be understood as religious liberty issues. It's really the kind of time where Christians have the opportunity to love our neighbor as ourselves, where we have the opportunity to demonstrate that we're being the good citizens, that Romans 13 calls us to be. It's the opposite of believing that we're being martyred in some unusual way. I've been to Cuba more than 10 times over the years, and I can talk about actual persecution against believers there. We can talk about believers that are risking their lives and their children and their future to stand up for Jesus. That's not the situation. On a second level, what really concerns me about this is the way we could be prejudicing the larger culture against our message and against our religious liberty. We can be poisoning the environment if they say, okay, that's what all Christians believe. All Christians think that it's all about them. All Christians think that gathering for worship is more important than risking the lives, especially of those that are at risk that come. We can be painted with that broad brush. The media tends to do that anyway. They tend to look at extreme examples as though they're representing all of us. And I'm concerned about us poisoning the environment relative to religious liberty in years to come because of the way that we could be turning the culture against us right now. It's critical that we love our neighbor as ourselves, that we do so as good citizens, and in so doing, we glorify our Lord. And I have to wonder at the same token, if we don't do a disservice, as I think you're suggesting, to the cause of Christ, when we try to amplify our own sense of um, righteous indignation, and I use that in quotes here, Dr. Dennison, our own sense of righteous indignation over what we perceive to be a restriction of our own religious liberties at a time when really and truly there are people who die daily 
because they name Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have suffered not just uh, governmental persecution, but institutional and cultural persecution. To be a believer in a place like Iran, for example, today, you very much literally take your own life into your own hands when you name Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's true for many parts of the the sort of extreme end of the Islamic world. And then, too, we see examples of uh, institutionalized and governmental persecution of believers in countries like North Korea, where if you're caught with a Bible, it's a three-year prison sentence for you and two generations of your family. When Jesus talks about suffering and dying for his namesake, I'm I'm supposing that this is what he's talking about, not the example of a church who's upset because local authorities have said you might spread the disease to people in the community and to vulnerable individuals within your own congregation. So we'd ask that you please don't gather, or if you're going to gather, you have to be six feet apart, no more than 50. I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking here that there's, a, there's an extreme disservice that we're doing not only to, to the gospel, but, but, but the shaming, um, in, in a sense, in relationship to what real persecution looks like. I mean, if, if we're this fragile right now, God help the church when we really face persecution. Absolutely right. When I've been to Cuba and seen what they're up against, I come back, and I really can't even call us persecuted. It's really hard to even use the same word, isn't it? When I've been in China, and I've met people that are risking everything to meet in underground, unauthorized churches, to smuggle Bibles, to smuggle discipleship materials, and and recognizing the cost that's in front of them in doing that. I come back, it's really tough to feel persecuted in America today. I do understand on some level, I guess, the logic, kind of this hedge around the law sort of an idea, that if we yield here, next we'll be yielding there, next we'll be yielding there camel of the nose in the tent sort of an idea. Slippery slope, yeah. Yeah, slippery slope. But I can promise you, people like Kelly Shackelford, organizations by, like like uh, that are on the forefronts of religious liberty, they're telling us this is not a religious liberty issue. That are, in fact, recently he and Al Mohler had, a, I thought, a phenomenal article in Washington Post making that very point. And Kelly Shackelford has argued religious liberty cases again at the Supreme Court. He's been seen one of the top lawyers in Texas for years. And he's saying this is not that slippery slope. And if we ever get there, we'll be the first to tell you, and we'll stand up and we'll speak against. Now, there are some one-off cases. There was a church I read about where uh, I think it was the local mayor that wouldn't let them meet in their cars on their uh, church campus to watch a worship service through the windshield. That was seen as religious discrimination, and when there was protest made, they immediately reversed themselves. So I'm certainly not here to say that every magistrate in every place is doing this properly, but we are here to say that from President Trump on down, the intention is not to persecute Christians. The intention, quite frankly, is to keep Christians from gathering together in a way that you could say persecutes others relative to transmission of a deadly virus, against which, again, we have no antidotes right now, we have no vaccines now. So loving our neighbors is how we love our Lord. And I'm thinking in, in our closing moments together that part of this ought to be perhaps the, the accepting and, and, and the comprehending of maybe a message that God is trying to send us, and that is that as much as we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves when it's possible from a, from a safety standpoint, but that this is not necessarily the time with so many people that are so fearful and the vulnerability that people are feeling right now, that this is not the ch- time for the church to be looking in, but rather to be looking out. I'm reminded of that passage of Scripture that, under normal times, calls upon the church to go, quote, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And as much as maybe the the physical, literal going out, 
might be hampered right now. There are so many opportunities before the body of Christ for people. If you look or struggle with an example or an opportunity to, to share your faith with somebody and you've been rejected before, watch now how people will, with a greater sense, I think, of openness, be eager to hear what makes you different, why you're not panicking, why you're not worried, in whom or what have you put your reliance to get through this terrible time. What a golden opportunity that the church can see this as the potential opportunity for a great harvest. Absolutely. One of my favorite stories about John Wesley is about that time. I know you know the story. He was on the ship. They're crossing the ocean. A horrific storm comes up. Everybody is crying out in fear. They're terrified for their lives, except a group of Moravian brethren who keep worshiping. They keep trusting. They keep praying with incredible calm, incredible peace. And afterwards, Wesley and others had to know from them, how were you able to do this? How were you able to withstand this life-threatening storm with such peace? And it was the proclamation of the gospel that was them explaining, well, our peace is in our Lord. We're ready to be with our Lord. If we die here, we live there. This is one step closer to eternity. It was that witness that, according to John Wesley, was enormously influential in turning his own heart to Jesus. And we know the results of that. You don't know the next John Wesley you might be impacting by your faithful witness during a difficult, fearful time. That's planting seeds you'll never, or trees you'll never sit under. That's planting the seed of the gospel. That's using, that's reframing this crisis as an opportunity for Jesus, and that's the mindset I believe he wants us to have. We know in whom we have believed and are persuaded that he is able. And I think that is not only a tremendous comfort to the church today, but also ought to therefore motivate us to be about the master's business for such a time as this. And while there may be a different way in which we have to engage in the going out into the highways and byways, this can be while perhaps the world's darkest hour, the greatest hour for the body of Christ. Dr. James Dennison, we appreciate so much the time and the insights. More information available regarding the Dennison Forum, simply go online to denisonforum.org. That's denisonforum.org. Dr. Dennison, thanks again so much for being with us today. Greg, what a privilege to do this with you. God bless you and yours. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.